So we're continuing then in, in John's first letter. The letter he wrote to encourage and challenge and warn the churches. And we spoke a little of inspiration. We said that God made John, gave him his characteristics, gave him that certain level of intelligence, that certain level of insight. He then used John to communicate what he wanted recorded. That's, that's how we understand his inspiration. And what that meant was that although we can say the Bible as a whole is the word of God, we can also say that because God chose to use different individuals, he employed their own styles. This is why we get different styles in the Bible, even though it's all from, from God. So we followed John's style and his train of thought so far in his letter. And he seems to be addressing the believers and saying, this is how we know someone is a true believer. Well, firstly, they, they love the brethren. They love the brethren. They love to be with their brothers and sisters in Christ. I would say, I would say we, we, we should want to be with the Lord's people, you know, all the time, really. But that's not practical. But certainly, love for the brethren. And also, he says, a true believer will shun error. So, we could say that we all have, we all have some errors. If we didn't, we would know all things and we would be perfect in knowledge. That's not the case. So I'm guessing that every one of us, unbeknown to us, holds some erroneous ideas of the scriptures. But there are things in the scriptures that are absolutely clear, such as Jesus Christ being the incarnate Son of God. And so when someone comes and denies that, then we should utterly reject that message. And thirdly, John says, a true believer is someone who understands that their mission on this planet is to tell others about Jesus Christ. Whatever way we can. So today we're going to just look at the first six verses of chapter 4. The first six verses. And it begins straight away with this beloved. He says, brothers and sisters who I love. That's what it means. Interestingly, he then launches into a speech about judging other people. So, here, John has no problem with speaking in the one breath about love and in the next breath about judging other people. So, if you hear someone ever say to you, judge not lest you be judged, I can virtually guarantee you that they are misquoting it. I can guarantee you that they are either in serious, in a serious spiritual state, or they're unsaved. Because that is the type of language that the world uses. Don't we be judging people? Don't we be telling them that their beliefs are wrong? Live and let live, and so on. But anyway, he launches into this thing, he launches into this, this message about false beliefs. Now, when we read, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. 
And in, in verse 2 it says, every spirit that confesses, and so on. This word spirit is used in a number of ways. And I think in this passage, it comes down to just two. It comes down to one of two. The Bible uses it for people. It talks about people, believers, as, a, as a spirits. It also uses it for attitudes, ideas, states of mind. You might recall from our reading a couple of weeks ago, from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was, was, was saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, what does that mean? It means that you know they are inwardly, emotionally, spiritually, they are downcast. So my question is, or our question is, when it says believe not every spirit, does it mean try the spirits? Is this talking about people? Or is it talking about ideologies, doctrines? And I don't think we can be sure. And I don't think we should worry. Why? Because really, someone can have a false doctrine in their mind, but it becomes a danger mostly when they start to spread that false doctrine. So it is both the spirit as in the person and the actual, the attitude, the doctrine itself that is to be guarded against. So I, I just mention that because as, as we go through it, I don't want us to be fixed on what one or the other. It could be both. I don't know. It starts off anyway by saying, you know, believe not every spirit. So whether that's, you know, the individual adoption out there, whatever it is, don't, don't believe everything. You know, so we have people... We have people in churches who, who, who just, you know, just believe anything that comes along. So that when, for example, when Steve Chalk, that famous vicar guy off the telly, when he came out and said, I do not believe that Jesus was the substitution for sinners. When he said that, I don't believe that Jesus was punished in the place of, of us. He was denying the substitutionary atonement. Did his church empty overnight? Did they all abandon him to the devil? No. They supported him and he's still got a thriving church and a thriving following all over the country. There's even, he even leads big events where tens of thousands of Christians attend. Even though the man's an out and out heretic. People will believe anything. When Rob Bell came and said that we shouldn't believe the hell, like the lake of fire, is eternal, that it's just an image. God wouldn't do that. God's love. People believed it. They just, they just believed anything that came along. No discernment. Does it affect us in evangelicalism? Well, it does a little bit. Because uh, within evangelical circles, we have people who are slaves to, to, to books and confessions and they just they believe anything if it's in that book on systematic theology and god help you if you if you argue with any of those things or it could be the westminster confession of faith some people are addicted to that and they would probably say you're not a christian if you don't subscribe to it so we can believe everything you know but we need to question stuff 
I suppose at the other extreme, you've got people who believe nothing, that they're sceptical about every, everything. People who listen to sermons and they're just looking for, oh, I don't agree with that, oh, that's wrong, I, I probably don't agree with that. And they become too sceptical. You've got all these extremes of behaviour, we're, we're trying to find something in the middle. I want you to partly trust me that I've delved into the Word and I've given it to you honestly, but you can't trust me wholly. If I say something and you've got a question mark in your head, you should check it out. Because I might be wrong. Been wrong before, I'll be wrong again, no doubt. And what does it say? Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. Try them. Try means, as in the word, trial. That's where that's it's connected. So, try here means put on trial. It, it, it reminds us in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2 says to the believers thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars so this is what we do we, we, we take someone comes along with some doctrine and, and we need to check that out we, 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 we bring that idea that person into the law courts if you like of the kingdom and we allow the Bible to be the judge of whether it's right or wrong. And the Bible will declare, if you like, whether that is truth or error. The issue here, the error, of course, as I've said to you many times, is those who deny that God came in human form. They deny that. They say that Jesus Christ was two persons Two complete separate individuals. A man born in the natural way, through Joseph and Mary, in the natural way. And then we have the spiritual element of the Christ, and they join together. You might think it sounds a little bit like what we believe, but it's not. It's fundamentally, fundamentally wrong. Jesus Christ is one person, and Jesus Christ is God. So, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. I thought it would take a minute just to, to focus a little bit on that phrase, because, only because some people contest the way that's been written. They say, well, we shouldn't say that Jesus Christ came into the flesh. It was God coming in the flesh who became Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name. It was given to him when he was born. And Christ is his title. Jesus means saviour, and Christ is the title because he's the, he's the king. That's what it means. I noticed that some people have tried to translate this as Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh, rather than what we have here. Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. And I don't think it's any more preferable. And why don't I think we should worry about it? Why do I think that this rendering here is, is perfectly fine? Well, Although we don't describe the Son of God in eternity as being Jesus Christ so much, we, we, we don't tend to use that language. We think Jesus was the name given to him on this earth. But, you know, if Jesus means saviour, was he not saviour from the foundation of the world? Was he not always Jesus? And when we talk about Christ, was he not always the, the king appointed and anointed from the foundation of the world. 
So I am happy. I am happy with this, this phrase, Jesus Christ come in the flesh. But you know what? The important thing here is, is not to do with those words. It is to do with the doctrine. We believe that doctrine. It's a vital truth and there's no excuse for denying it. We have, we have the Russellites, otherwise known as Jehovah's Witnesses. They deny it. We have uh, Mormons. They deny it. And a whole host uh, of others deny it. It says here in 1 Timothy 3.16 Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest, appeared in flesh. That's what it says. To say otherwise, in verse 3, to say otherwise is to spread the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist. So here's a usage of spirit, which means, you know, a sort of a belief. The spirit of Antichrist. And we discussed that back in chapter 2. We defined it there. Where we said it was neither Pope nor monster of the end times, it was someone who denied the incarnation. There's an interesting picture here, maybe maybe within the text. We can see something that John has already mentioned, which is that he's presenting to people. He's saying, You have people who confess that Jesus Christ is who he is, he come in the flesh, he's the Saviour. You have others over here who are saying that none of that's true. The Gnostics and others. Now, from John's point of view, it seems clear that he expects that anyone who professes to be a Christian is saying something. Everyone who claims to be a Christian is testifying something to the world. So you've got the genuine believers and then you've got the fake ones. But there's perhaps a third group the third group say nothing at all. The third group just spend their Christian lives and keep their mouths closed. And don't, don't share the testimony with the world at all. I don't want to hammer the point too much, but John has already said to us in previous weeks, we've seen him say to us that that's not a true believer. That, that's not someone who's acting like a true believer. And so I said to your friends, at the very least, take stock, take stock of your own life, your own, your own uh, habits as a Christian. Try to make time for, for these things somehow. I noticed in uh, Revelation, actually, it says, uh, Revelation chapter 12, which we went over a while ago, it says, it says, Christians overcame him, that's Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. There seems to be an image there of the blood of the Lamb, you know, that's, you know, they, they get saved. And the word of their testimony is their, their, represents their, their Christian life. And those, we can see those two stages. Those two stages in the Christian life can probably be seen as well in the ordinances. The ordinance of baptism and the breaking of bread. Because water baptism is a one-off event to symbolise a one-off spiritual work by God. When he gave you his spirit and regenerated and saved you. The breaking of bread is a week by week by week affair. Why? Because that represents an ongoing life where we are part of Jesus and we 
draw on him, if you like. We draw on him for all these graces. And so it, it's not at all unusual for the, for the Christians' whole existence to be split up into those two things. Their conversion and then their life afterwards. And Revelation describes their Christian life as testifying. Let's look at verse 4. Quite a famous uh, little section there. It says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There's even been a little course uh, in some hymn books using those words. It could be, it could be, um, it could be, yeah, greater is he. So it could be greater is he that is in you, a person, than some person in the world. Remember what I said at the beginning, though, that we've got to keep an open mind here. Um, for example, uh, it could be to do with person, because God lives in us. A person lives in us, it says here in John's Gospel, in chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. We will come and live in that person. So we not only have John telling us that the Holy Spirit lives in us, but the Father and the Son lives in us as well. So it's quite right to speak of God being in us. And being greater than anything in, in this world, Satan or any other enemy. There is an alternative way of reading that verse. Greater is that which was in you than that which is in the world. Uh, why, why, would we, why would we say that? Because in verse 3, it says the spirit of Antichrist is in the world. The false doctrine of Antichrist is in the world. So it might be just as good to, 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 to read that verse 4 as greater is that which is in you, spirit of truth, than that which is in the world, spirit of antichrist. But in any case it says you've overcome them, you've overcome these, the, these doctrines and these people, you've overcome them. What's that mean oh, to overcome How do we overcome? We overcome in our conversion. Because, well, in our conversion, we, we thought, we found ourselves thinking differently than the world. And we risked being ostracised by friends and family because of that, going against the tide. We, we overcame in that we trusted in Jesus Christ, and even though we couldn't see him, we couldn't see him as a person, but we trusted in him. We also fought off Satan because Satan would have desperately tried to ruin your salvation experience in some way. And you managed to fight him off. And since then, since then you've had successes in, in temptation experiences. You've overcome fear to tell other people about Jesus. And you've You've overcome laziness to build up your knowledge of the scriptures and your knowledge of the person of Jesus. But, you know what I'm about to say. All those things have been done in God's strength. All of them. 
It is all by God's grace. But, incredibly, God is happy to ascribe the victory to you. He is happy to say that you have had the victory. That you have overcome. In fact, he, he says in Revelations uh, chapters 2 and 3, with those letters to the churches, he says, unless you do overcome, <clears throat> unless you, believer, overcome, overcome the world and the flesh and the devil, then you'll be lost. Overcome. It says here in this letter to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, it says. Fight the good fight of faith, it says. Fight, 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 it's saying it's... We, we want to fight so that we can, when we get to that point where we think we're about to leave this world, we can say what Paul says when he says, I have fought a good fight. I have fought a good fight. Friends, I, you know, I could drop down, I could drop down dead any time. What a time for you to come back. Talking about me dropping down dead. But, but if, I, if I was there now in the, in, the, in the hospital and thinking, you know, they told me I've only got a few hours left, would I be able to say, I have fought a good fight? I mean, that's what we should be aiming for. So the message is to fight so that we can be in that position. Make sacrifices with your time so you've got more time for God. I am definitely preaching that to myself more than anyone in this room. I talked about all this overcoming in a, in a, in a general way, but what, what about here? Because it says you have overcome them. You have overcome them. So this is something particular. How did these individual Christians overcome this spirit of Antichrist? Well, it was just through the truth. It was just through the truth. It was believing it, holding it, it was having it preached, having it declared openly. And that, that is what we need to do. We need to maintain the truth. <laughs> What's the result of that? We saw in chapter 2. The result of that is that they'll, they'll run away. They'll leave churches. The false brethren will just leave. They, they, they can't stand it. So that leaves me with the question, friends, why are you here today? Why are you here, not somewhere else? I think it's because of truth, that, that within this congregation there's, there's a sense that the truth is more important than other things that might tempt us. I think that's what it is. There's a church 200 yards away, that way, for example. A big, I haven't been in it, but it's a big old-fashioned church, and I bet you're inside. It's a lovely place. I bet you it's nice, nice old-fashioned. Maybe some stained glass windows. You've been in it, brother. Yeah. You've been nice, is it? Inside, they normally are very attractive. And you could go, you could go, you could all go there, couldn't you, and start attending? But I, I, I guess that you'd feel uncomfortable there. So you're forsaking the, the, this nicer building for a, a lesser one. And you're forsaking a bigger congregation somewhere else for a, small, a much smaller one. Well, 
There are evangelical churches that have large congregations, and I would not write them off. I would not assume because they have hundreds of people that they're doing something wrong. But I would have to look at that very closely because often in those churches you have the world, the unbelievers, worshipping every Sunday, as it were, with the believers. And they're quite happy and they're singing their hearts out and listening to the messages and they love it all. And that doesn't make sense. How can, they, how can the world, how can the world love this message? We've got here these final verses. We've got five and six. This other message, the world, the world likes that. But the world doesn't like what we've got to say. The world doesn't like our message. So if we're faithful to it, they, they wouldn't stay. So if we have large evangelical churches and the world and the whole community thinks they're fantastic, I hope I'm not too harsh in saying they're probably watering down their doctrines. Here's the reality, my friends. To be popular with the world, you cannot preach the whole counsel of God. You can't. You drive them away. Well, we're not thinking last week about how the world hates righteousness. The world hates righteousness itself. <laughs> and if God is all righteous, then they hate him. They want him dead. And if you are righteous, you belong to God, you're righteous, they, they want you off the planet. They, they don't want you. You're just a nuisance to them, and a thorn in the side. It, it's, someone said the light, the light of God's truth is like, it's like the sun in the desert. It's beaten down on these people, and they, they, they just they, they can't stomach it. It's, it's just a torture to them. And they just want to get into shelter. And Satan's there. Satan's there. He'll, he'll provide shelter for them quite happily. We, uh, we've been praying for revival. And some crazy thoughts about what revival is. People read these historical events and think, we want a revival. We want people rolling around the floor saying, woe is me. We want all the, you know, people, I don't know, giving up smoking and giving up drinking. And oh, what, a, what a great revival. I'm not too interested in that type of revival, friends. I'm not too interested in that. Uh, a revival is when God revives us. And the, the, the truth is, it's about revived preaching. It's about, if God revives me, it means that my preaching will be more faithful and God's Holy Spirit will accompany my words more powerfully than he ever did before. And as God revives you, he will, he will stir you up inside so that you start to love those things that formerly you did not really excite you in God's word. That's a, that's a real revival. It's a revival of truth amongst other things. And if God stirs you up and revives you and makes you more enthusiastic, you might, a dream of the day, when the church of God worldwide starts to be so, is just so consumed by the Spirit of God, that we just we just can't hold it in. We just have to we just have to go out and tell people. And in that case, we might see people added to the number. But the opposite might be the case. If God revives New Road Church, the congregation might shrink. If you can believe that, the congregation might shrink because if the preaching changes and gets more faithful and God's Spirit is moving, 
Some people might be sitting there and find it extremely uncomfortable. I think they will go. We might get smaller in revival. So why would we want it? Why would we want revival? Well, it honors God. That's enough, isn't it? It honors God. If we're more fervent, we honor God more. But it also brings us joy. It brings us the joy of our salvation. I imagine, what if we were, what if we were a popular church and you know, we could have fair? What would it be like? We would have uh, a place to be packed and uh, there'd be families and the singing would be, well, it'd raise the roof, wouldn't it? And there'd be money coming in, we could afford to, to, to get the building all done up like all modern. How could we do that here? In case you want, in case that's what you want, how are we going to accomplish that at New Road? The, the, the prime thing is we need to alter the preaching straight away. We need to maybe cut it down to five minutes. A five minute message. Cut out any mention of sin, righteousness and judgment. All those things that the world hates. So the preaching would have to be watered down. Maybe a bit, a bit Arminian. We'd maybe get a maybe get a bank home and get the place all smartened up. Get a drum kit, guitars going, overheads, and just, you know, people think, oh, it's really, there's a real buzz there. We could do that. We could do that. But um, is that what you want? Is that what you want? Would you swap what you have now? Small congregation, building that's in need of a lick of paint, maybe? Is that what you want? Do you, would, you swap, would you swap what you've got for all that? I don't think so. I think that's why you're here. I think that's why you're here. So back to reality. Here we are. We're, here, we're in this. We're in this building. We're in this small congregation, and uh, I think it's. Uh, I think it's a wonderful place. You're here because you value truth above everything else. You value the truth of God, and I. I just pray that God will bless you. I pray that God will bless you for your commitment to his truth. Let's pray together.